0: all right okay welcome to the thereafter podcast a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change
1: we're here to break down the binaries deconstruct the dualities and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray
0: in church we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism but we've discovered quite the opposite
1: there's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing.
0: Come along as we explore the all-too-often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter.
1: Megan is with me.
0: I was going to say of the thereafter podcast, but we always say that 40 times when we're introducing the It's the thereafter
1: podcast. In case you didn't hear the intro or us saying it before, this is the thereafter podcast.
0: Another episode.
1: <laughs> another another episode. Megan, how are you?
0: I'm good. It's, it's Sunday afternoon. Just had kind of a relaxing day. We've been laying around reading books and watching TV. What about you?
1: What are you reading?
0: Oh, you know what I was reading today that was so... Well, I'm reading Kevin Nye's book, which we always love to rave about Kevin.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: good. And also um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, which you said you've read. Yes,
1: I have read. I read it like right when it came out a few years ago.
0: It's very inspiring because um, some people know that I've been percolating on a few thoughts of writing a book. And I think that there's a lot that gets in the way and blocks my brain with the idea that that's even a potential. And really that book is like essentially a permission slip to just say, go be creative and don't let things hold you back. So it's, it's good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely, I think when I read it, I was in much more of like a woo woo space. And I, if I remember right, it's a very woo woo book, right? It's kind of the idea is that, you know, kind of like personifying ideas and kind of like giving this magical narrative to ideas as, as almost independent beings (laughs) that are like, kind of like (laughs) roaming around the earth, searching for muses to turn them into creative material. And I, I like that. I think it's beautiful.
0: I mean, it's a little bit like that, but there, I mean, I think that there's a little bit of just, you know your idea doesn't have to be, you don't have to set out to become a New York Times bestselling author to, to put something that you have into motion and and create something, whether it's writing, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, like something entrepreneurial, like to to create something like you don't have to, and and you also don't have a master's degree in that field or you know you don't have to set out to win a nobel prize or whatever you know and so i think it, it it's just as good to help frame like hey like i i can just wake up and be creative and not have to you know try to be a perfectionist about it i get maybe that's the way i'm reading it because that's yeah how i think I am, it's different right?
1: because of your yeah your perspective reading it which i think is great i think it's interesting you know it's been a long time since i've read it but it is interesting to think about you know how we read and consume content in different ways from different perspectives and i think that that is an interesting thing to think about too when we're talking about you know obviously these intros we do the twitbats when we talk about twitter when we talk about social media content and and thinking about the fact that the way in which people consume social media content and the way a tweet hits a person uh is 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 can be very different from person to person and and i yeah i I think that 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 nuance gets lost a lot of time in the kind of like the 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 bite-sized 30-second attention span culture that we we live in um and uh that could that could lead in well to some things that we want to talk about with uh with twitter and what's happening on social yeah. media,s
0: let's get into it. Twitbits. What was
1: let's get into what, it?
0: What was happening this week? There was a lot. I feel like the Billy Graham rule just kind of comes and goes. It's like a wave that just kind of comes and goes throughout Twitter. And um, I think there were a couple takes. Um, I I shared one that, and I just said like, "This is making me tired." Um, from a woman who just said, "There's absolutely no reason ever to hang out with a man that's." not my husband and then there was another that you had shared and eventually I just um shared a a gif of um somebody playing frisbee by themselves and just said this is this is bisexuals following the Billy Graham rule because I got tired of all of it. What was the one that you shared, Cortland?
1: I wish I wish I could I, I wish I could remember who the original tweet author was that had a really positive tweet right basically saying like it is not it it was a woman saying it is it is not uh i can't even paraphrase well basically she was saying it's okay for my husband to be friends with women and it's not a bad thing that my husband has you know he doesn't he shouldn't see women as you know uh uh, a threat (laughs) to (laughs) him or to our relationship and actually it's great that he has relationships with other women um and that's not a threat to a marriage and i think that that was that was like a christian woman saying that 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 started a lot of the discourse and then somebody somebody had replied to that tweet saying you know well there's no reason that a man would hang out with a woman uh aside from wanting sex right
0: which also led to us um somebody one of our twitter mutuals responded and said there's more to how did they word it there's there's more to life more to life
1: than putting your penis into other people
0: (laughs) yeah we we went down the rabbit hole of saying that should be cross-stitched and then mj came came out of the woodwork and said hey i I can actually cross-stitch that after you made a pattern so I, i thought that was pretty funny too
1: Yeah, I think that she's going to do it. And there was another person who also volunteered. So we may have a couple of people making some cool cross stitches of there's more to life than trying to put your penis into other people, Uh, (laughs) which I definitely want one.
0: And of course, like Cortland and I can ramble for a long time about the Billy Graham rule, but we've already done it on the podcast. And so we have a a, um, former episode from... Season two, where we talked about deconstructing the Billy Graham rule. So if if you're interested in our thoughts on that, you can go back and check that out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that that episode holds up. I think there's tons more always to be said about this. And I also think that there is like in, I got into a conversation under uh, the queen of heathens uh, Twitter this week uh, with a guy and you know, he, he said something, she had said something, um, Jess, who's been a guest, uh, queen of heathens on Twitter, heathen queen on TikTok, Uh, she had said something like, Hey, if, if a guy doesn't have any women friends or friends that are women, that's a red flag. Uh, and this guy responded and said, Hey, I love you queen. I think you're great, but I'm going to have to disagree with you. And she said, we can disagree. You know, uh, I think she asked him if, he dated men. I was like, she said, you know, do you date men? Uh serious question. And he said, no, you know, I've been married. Uh, I, you know, I dated a ton, uh, in my twenties, I've been married now for 10 years and I have kids. I don't have any women friends. I don't think that that's a problem. I know most of my married male straight friends do not have women friends. Uh, and, you know there were some people who went after him uh for good reason in that thread i asked him i was like can you explain a little bit more you know where what your thought process is behind this and 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 it was full of you know some anecdotes about you know well you know a woman wouldn't come over and watch red zone or um uh, what was it like a, a woman's not going to come over and like hang out and watch red zone which I had to look up is like apparently a football thing uh, <laughs> <laughs> with with a man uh if they weren't wanting to have sex or something like that, uh if they weren't interested in them and and I wanted to try to give this guy a lot of like credit, i guess <laughs> is maybe not the right word i I wanted to like basically put my myself in his thought process as a straight married man who maybe just hasn't had a lot of exposure to some of these other ideas. I don't know how you follow queen of heathens on Twitter and not get exposed to some of these other ideas. Um, and he said he was, you know, he loved her and and loved following her. So I'm, I'm a little confused, but I, I, I do think that there is, there is these things that, that aren't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily like, in and of itself harmful to kind of like think that anecdotally or like based on your experience, women wouldn't be into football or whatever. Right. And I, and I guess I want to like, like acknowledge and not get hyper internet personality on this guy and go like, maybe that's been his experience. Like he hasn't experienced women in his life who are into football or whatever. Uh, that may very well, but also can you take for a second and like what I ended up saying was like, uh, you know, me as a bisexual man, I, I have lots of women friends that I hang out with and spend time with. I know lots of straight men and women who spend time together and are friends. Do you believe that's possible? And is there maybe something underlying in what you're saying that even though I was like, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to challenge your lived experience. This may be your lived experience. However, is it possible that your lived experience is limited? And I think that that is maybe something that an approach that I don't know if it's helpful or effective or not, but like I think that there are a lot of people, men, straight men, conservative people who who do have a very limited lived experience. And so you kind of have to baby step them towards the reality that like their experience is limited. And, and me as a person with a fair amount of privilege has the energy and time to kind of do that. Whereas I think, you know, obviously a lot of other people who got in that thread were like, fuck you, dude, you're a misogynist, (laughs) which I also think think is fair.
0: Baked into that whole thing. Baked into what he was saying is the assumption that like, women and men inherently are so different that they wouldn't have common interests that they would just naturally want to connect over. So like whether it's football, whether it's something else I think about, um, A friend of the pod, a friend of ours, Josh Hake, somebody that I go to concerts with a lot. Um, And we have very, very similar taste in music. We've introduced each other to different musicians that we love, and we have very similar taste in music. So, like me bringing my partner to an Ani DeFranco show, my partner is like, I know this this musician is important to you. I'll come to the show. That's great. And you'll have a good time and I'll be there. Cause like, you'll have somebody to go with. But when I go with somebody like Josh Hake, who's also a huge Anita Franco fan, like it's a different experience because we're both like so excited about the song that we've been dying to hear her play and, and singing along with every word of her show. And, and I also, I mean, same thing with, I, I went running with, with our friend Ben, um, who's also a friend of the pod on Saturday, yesterday. And so like, my partner's not a runner. And so it's just like, we met downtown, went running and it was like totally platonic and and also made me feel a little bit safer than running by myself. And so it's just like, I, I think that there's this like maybe inherent belief in what this guy in the comments was saying of like, well, like men like football and men like this and men like that. And like the only reason women would quote unquote, tolerate football was like, cause they would be kind of interested in being in the presence of men for sex, which as an aside, I used to play fantasy football. So like, I, I like football, but, um, it, it's just interesting because I feel like every time this comes up, there's so much to unpack behind what those comments are. And sure. Like people can go through life, not having friends of the opposite, opposite sex outside of their, you know, straight, heterosexual, like, you know, marriage, but, um, I just said the same things twice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I, I, I think, I think you're missing out. That's, I mean, I'm not going to force you to go have friends that are, you know, that if you're not comfortable, but I I do think you're going to miss out. And I do think that trying to prescribe that to everyone is toxic because there's so many assumptions and misconceptions baked into that prescription.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's I guess that's what what this guy was trying to say and I guess is is worth addressing here is that that he was saying like I don't try to avoid friendships with women, I just don't connect with women. It or it just hasn't happened in my experience. I think and again, I'm giving a very like like generous reading to his tweets. Sure. Uh, by saying this, but but if I was to be extra generous, that's what I kind of heard him saying is like, "Hey, this has been my experience as an old straight dad." uh, married guy who like just doesn't vibe with women. And, and he was trying to kind of be like, Hey, that's not a red flag. I'm not a bad guy. Is kind of what he was trying to, he was being defensive. <laughs> I think yeah. ultimately, and I, and I, and I think that there's some validity to do, like, yeah, sure. That's, that doesn't make you a bad guy necessarily. I I think that there's some fairness to that. However, the reason that you, I guess, like, like if you can't get beyond your personal lived experience and realize there's a lot of other people with different lived experiences that are negatively impacted by this type of forced ideology that says, you know, men and women are so different and opposite and, and, and can't connect outside of romantic or sexual interest. Uh, you're, you're missing the point. And and I think, I think, that that in a lot of these conversations that we have online, there's nuance. We talked about it in the episode with Kevin last week. Like there's there's nuance. I I thought it was interesting because I really appreciated what Kevin said when I brought up the Greta Thunberg uh, and Andrew Tate stuff, and and he was talking about you know using this misogyny against the misogynist. Sure. Uh, I saw a TikTok from your pal Austin and he he was basically saying the the same thing like hey i get it but like if if we are going to like it almost can feel like we're beginning to like see andrew tate and you know this total asshole incel misogynist king and greta thunberg we're gonna like see them and like like validate their opinions at the same level when you know it's like Hey this is an astrophysicist, and this is a flat earther. Like their opinions are not equal, you know yes. <laughs> like we cannot begin to equate those two opinions together and and call that fair and balanced or valid. Um, and so there's just a lot of nuance, I think, in these conversations that we that we we have to have. and that's that's what we've always wanted to do here and 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 hopefully people have have gotten that from us and and feel that. Um, in terms of how we approach these conversations.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, the other thing that happened on Twitter, which I followed a little bit, but not super closely, um, it didn't happen on Twitter, it happened in like uh, the United States. It was (laughs) uh, the the Speaker of the House, that vote and and the catastrophe that it was um, of voting over and over and over again until the Republicans got the vote that they wanted, um, which was wild. So um, I, yeah. I thought we were talking briefly about politics and in the legislative branch of the government before we started and and you were cracking me up with your takes on on all yeah. of that
1: I think it's interesting anytime I don't know enough about the intricacies of this house vote and you know the political dynamics between all of this but I do think it's interesting when the public eye gets you know like get some some visibility of how the legislative branch and legislature like, like operates. And I saw, uh, oh man, a few people, uh, Robert Monson had a tweet about like these, these guys getting, you know, paid to just be ridiculous or silly or just like, you know, like it is very silly. Like if you've ever like watched a lot of what happens, there's a video of them, uh, asking for the vote, whether they're going to adjourn. And like, it's like the eyes versus the nose. And I don't know if you saw this, but, like, they were, like, you know, all in favor say aye, and then all the Republicans say aye, and then all, you know, opposed say no, and all the Democrats are, like, no. And it, like, went on for, like, ten minutes of them screaming no in various different tonalities. And you watch it, and you're, like, this is a frat house. Like, (laughs) that's how I feel about the legislative branch of government is, like, it's very – it's, like, this, like – Insular, like, weird little dynamic of people who are spending hours and hours and hours of their life in this little microcosm subculture of the legislature and of, you know, Robert's rules of order and technical little, uh, uh, like, procedural things, right? If you've ever watched the, like, a... uh, Oh, man, why is the word... What's the word where they where they they go up and they just like talk and talk and talk to like keep a vote from happening? Oh, a
0: filibuster?
1: <laughs> yeah, filibuster, right? Yeah. If you ever watch like something like that happen, you're like, this is silly. It's theater, right?
2: Yeah. Like what is
1: happening in and it's it's weird whenever the US public kind of gets to see the, the theater and this like weird culture that is legislative government. And I think people Sometimes they're like what the fuck? Like what is, <laughs> you know, I worked at the state house for a session um and realizing that like these people are are basically held up in a couple buildings and like oftentimes till, you know, there would be committees that would go until 1 or 2 in the morning yeah. in the basement of the capitol. And then they're all going out to some bar or going to some back room and, like, having whiskey and getting drunk and then, you know, ironing their shirt in their office the next morning because they slept on the floor in their office. You know, it is a frat house. Like, (laughs) it is such a weird – and these are the people who are, like, making our laws and creating our government, uh,
0: you know –
2: It's so wild
0: because it's so isolated from the people that they're, quote unquote, advocating for, you know, and so it's it feels so disconnected from the reality of the human experience, uh, you know, in, in in on a multitude of levels, because I think, you know, they're just kind of creating policy, passing, you know, voting on bills and and just largely disconnected from the voices that need to be heard that really are affected by those bills
1: yeah and and I don't know exactly this is not to be an apologist for the you know shitty politicians because there's a lot of shitty politicians. Um, having personal experience with some legislators on a state and a federal level, um, I think there's often times a misunderstanding of like how much like how how difficult it really is <laughs> to be like in your community and like connected to reality because of just like the job. Right. Um, because a lot of it is the system. The system is set up where these folks are in Washington. Um, and I know like one of the congressmen uh, who is from where I live, who I know well, like, I think he he had an apartment with like two or three other congressmen in washington dc because they have to be out there so it's like he's living like basically out on a bachelor pad (laughs) with these other congressmen out there and like you oftentimes will hear people say like oh these guys make you know whatever it is hundred and fifty thousand dollars. i don't know what the salary is for the u.s congress right now it's it's high compared to a lot of u.s americans um But also like they're expected to like have a home in their district and have a place to stay in Washington and travel back and forth between Washington and their home district and go to lots of events that they're not really allowed to like take money for or get comp tickets for or things like that because that would be perceived as bribing. And again, I'm not trying to be like, oh, it's such a hard life for them. But also the system is set up to not make it very easy for your everyday person to be able to go and do that. And I would guess that most people who are well-networked in their community and, like, living an average life in whatever congressional district you live in were to, like, have to, like, live the, you know, representative lifestyle, they would probably not be normal within a very short period of time because you can't yeah. live that lifestyle and really stay in touch with how other people live because it's a freaking weird way to live. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway.
0: No, I hear that. I hear all of that.
1: Government um, is weird.
0: Before we intro the interview, though, I want to also just do a quick plug for um, the this week's After Hours episode of Chap- chapel probation that We were on with Scott Okamoto because I, not just because we were on it, but because that was so damn fun to have that conversation with Scott and, and, um, I, we're both huge fans of the work that he's doing in his podcast and he's working on a book right now. And so if you don't follow Scott Okamoto or listen to chapel probation, um, please check that out because it was, um, he's great and talking with him is always a good time.
1: Yes, definitely. I had several people when I posted about that say, oh, chapel probation. That reminds me of my time at Azusa or Wheaton or wherever. Uh, And I was like, oh yeah, you got to go listen to these episodes, um, especially if you went to a Christian college. But even if you didn't, I didn't go to a Christian college and I still really love listening to his episodes. Uh, Right before our After Hours episode that we did with him, he had uh, Brad Onishi uh, on for his book release that uh, came out this last week as well. Uh, oh, go buy that Day. if you don't have it. <laughs> uh, yeah, go go get that book. I listened to that episode, which was super fun too. Uh, since you know Brad went to Azusa and Scott was a professor at Azusa, and and so um, it's a great podcast. So yeah, go listen to our episode where we ramble about all kinds of funny things. <laughs> but sexual <then> go...
0: loopholes. go. <laughs> Yes, yes. Armed Various different abs, ways all the things.
1: <laughs> to have not quote unquote, uh, capital S sex, uh, and how, <laughs> how, how some people need to get back to, you know, ex- some experimentation, man. Some, some people's sex lives have gotten kind of boring. <laughs>
0: yeah (laughs) fooling around like (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah pretend you're not allowed to do the real thing because there's other things that you could try
0: yeah so Uh, see the whole conversation hear the whole conversation on chapel probation after hours um but i want to introduce this interview too um yes go for it we talk about how we're connected this is a friend emily that I connected through, um, that's local that I connected with, um, through the church that I sometimes am a part of, but I just want to say, because, um, Emily not somebody that's intentionally trying to grow a platform or have, you know, s- something that she's trying to do in this world. But I just, you know, feel sometimes there's people that maybe they aren't trying to grow a platform, but they just have things that are so fucking important to say. And I just, I, Emily's one of those people. And when she tweets, I really, I listen and I pay attention because she always has something really interesting to say and she pushes back and you'll hear it in the interview. Um, she doesn't hold back with what she wants to say about um, and and her thoughts, um, her wisdom about, different levels of oppression, marginalization, um, intersectional identities. And so I'm so excited for, um, our listeners to hear what Emily has to say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, Emily has become, I didn't, I wasn't connected with her until we did this interview and we've become fast friends on Twitter and, uh, it's a good episode. She's a person who, who, uh, challenges me to think about things in a different way. And there is even things that she says in this interview that like could be very, very specifically directed to me uh, or other people very close to me um, that I think is worth hearing and worth you know stopping and considering uh, that even those of us who may be doing work in one area may not have all of the consideration for other areas or other intersectional identities of people, right? If I am primarily working in gay spaces, my understanding of the trans experience may not be there. Uh, if I'm primarily working in gay men spaces, my understanding of the 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 experience of women may not be there. And so just because you may be uh, quote unquote air quote progressive, uh, I really think Emily brings some perspectives that we need to be hearing and I'm really excited to feature on this episode of Thereafter.
0: Well, let's get into it.
1: Let's do it. Hey, Megan, how are you?
0: Hey, I'm good, how are you?
1: We have a guest here.
0: We do, we have Emily. Emily is somebody that, this is this is kind of a reverse of how we usually have guests because you're somebody that I met through a local community before we started interacting online, big surprise. And so, Emily, we'd love for you to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of context of who you are. Um, and I we have so many things that we've kind of thought about unpacking here and I'm so excited to
2: dive in. Yes well thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Emily Anija Fenning. I know it's a mouthful Um, and I met Megan like she said through a local community group. I joined a church book club here in the olden days where I thought that I might be revisiting the idea of church and joined a book club that I really didn't stick out but um, really enjoyed getting to know Megan and having deeper conversations so that's that's how I found her. Um, I'm trying to think what else there is about me. Generally, I'm behind the scenes in my job, so I'm really struggling to think of how to describe myself. Um, I work in real estate in Portland. I live in the Tualatin area, um, and I spend like all of my free time reading and asking people really uncomfortable conversations about hard things. Um, I think my friends call me a professional Cassandra, so that's probably all you really need to know. I love it.
1: That's great. And yet again, another person in the PNW who Megan gets to hang out with. So many people that we're connected to through this podcast live in her area of the world. And I'm always so jealous because she's like, oh, I got to hang out with this Twitter person. I get to hang out with this friend from the podcast. It hasn't happened yet for me. We haven't built that community here in Denver yet, but someday...
2: you'll get you'll get there one of my favorite twitter follows ended up moving from florida to portland and now you know i get to see her all the time so you never know
1: that's awesome yes i'm always encouraging twitter friends to move to denver although it's like yes leave portland go to denver (laughs) (laughs) i think i think that 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 back and forth between denver and portland is a pretty consistent uh route of people between those two places
0: Yes. Yeah, I, for sure. I Well, before we dive into the things that we kind of wanted to unpack, tell us a little bit about your faith journey. You kind of alluded like, okay, there was a time where I was kind of thinking I could do church again. I'm not really there now. Um, and so like, w- what was kind of your upbringing? Were you brought up in faith? And then did you have like a kind of how, how was shifting and deconstruction, all of that? Was that, is that... um a journey that you kind of relate with, and we're curious about that.
2: Oh my God, yes! So for my upbringing, I was raised pretty much early on in non-dominal spaces. When I was younger, my parents attended an Episcopal church, but um, after we lived in Oregon for a little while, and I, I've been here most of my life, I would describe it as being raised in a church cult. So mm. I grew up in a church of no more than twenty people. Um, I was the only child in the church, so it was all people about 50 and up. Very hardcore evangelical, but they wouldn't call themselves evangelical. Um, Very, very end times, very, very end times. Like be prepared to smash your phones, leave your pets behind, have years of food in your basement. Um, Everything was a sign. A lot of terror, which is not great for someone who grew up to have pure O, because they were afraid of the end of the world and sinful thoughts all the time. Um, Also in my cult church, I would describe it as being exorcist light. So all sin was an action. You would fill out checklists about your sins and behaviors, which again, not great to have with religious scrupulosity. Um, And then you would renounce and repent of each of those things. And they would cast the demons out of you. So that was my church upbringing. It was really overwhelming. And when I was in high school, I had several friends commit suicide. And most of those friends were in the LGBTQIA community. And watching the church respond to those deaths and to those people was kind of the beginning of the end for me. I never felt like they were going to hell, but I always worried about it for myself. And I just couldn't imagine that that was what was going to happen to them. And I just wanted to be done. It took a really long time to actually leave. But I think once I unpacked my belief in hell, which I no longer have, I didn't see a reason to keep going to church.
1: Okay. And for you, were you in this like very kind of like insular community, were you homeschooled? Were you isolated? Were you... What was your, I went to, I went to three different
2: high schools. Okay. Um, yeah, all in, all in the same area. I was isolated. I didn't have a lot of friends who were in, well, I didn't have any friends at church and the church was very good at telling parents how to raise their children. So I had a lot of very heavy scrutiny on everything I was doing. And if anything I was doing, wasn't church approved, that would have been considered sinful. Damn.
0: So I'm curious like on top of what was going on with your friends in high school you also I've you know as I've interacted with you both in book clubs also on Twitter you your views on a lot of things have shifted. And so how did how did you start to unlearn and process and relearn and kind of move into that area of like, wait a second, not only was this wrong, but this, this, and this is kind of now where I'm starting to shape my new values and, and whatever, whether it's belief system or ethics and all of that.
2: Um, it's a really good question. I think, I think like a lot of people who start deconstructing their faith, You get to this place of affirming theology sometimes and a lot of people stop there and that wasn't enough. So I found Mm -hmm. myself saying, wanting to figure out if I could understand the relationship to church and if there was a place in it for me once the idea of hell was off the table. But what I found was in leaving evangelical spaces, a lot of deconstructive spaces, or even a lot of like religious adjacent spaces or church spaces that are affirming, have kept all the toxicity of evangelical culture. They just now allow gay people to participate in it. So, like a good example of this, and one of the reasons I'm no longer at the church or book club that I met Megan at is because of this. They were affirming, but disability was the very last thing that they would consider and I don't think that you can have a safe space I don't think you can have a healthy space I don't think you can have a productive space in any meaningful capacity if you're only including one marginalized identity and particularly in the Pacific Northwest because we're such a heavily white area you still end up with white supremacist roots and all of the things that you're doing and people will not unpack those So there wasn't room for me even in affirming spaces. And I eventually hit a point where I stopped wanting to fit into the room and wanted to build my own table. Hmm. Yeah.
1: What was it, what was it for you that, that I guess made you realize it as, as opposed to those who kind of go like, okay, I don't believe in hell anymore. I'm affirming now at this point and like basically like cool we can just move on we've got rid of these kind of like two problematic or three problematic things um what was it for you that that caused you to like look around and be like no there's still supremacy here there's still disability injustice here
2: it was kind of death by a thousand cuts in a lot of different ways it's like as soon as I found something it was different than my old church anything seemed better because my previous church was just so deeply toxic um that it took me a long time probably longer than it should have to realize how much toxicity existed in every other space and that it's still there just because no one's trying to perform exorcisms doesn't mean that it's not there um I was at a church and they had said that they were taking all these COVID precautions and doing this, that and the other, and the pastor didn't have a mask on. And they're like, we're following the CDC. And I was like, right. Remember when they let all of these people die during the HIV crisis. And like, they're, they're still not centering marginalized people. And we had a zoom church where the camera was off center and you couldn't see all the words on the screen. You kind of couldn't see the pastor and it was like, well, that's what you think of me in the church. That's what you think of disabled people in the church. You're back in person. There's no masks and we're an afterthought. You can't even set up a camera so that we can be in a space that you're in and get the full picture. Why would I ever want to partake of this with you? Yeah.
1: Can you talk a little bit about like, do you do you have a, a personal experience with disability that yeah, I do. comes to play here? Because I would love to kind of dig into that a little bit.
2: I do, but it honestly wasn't in play as much as it is now. So I have long COVID. (laughs) I got COVID this year uh, and it really disabled me. It changed a lot about my life. But before that, I lived with chronic pain that I didn't have a lot of answers for. So I hadn't come to terms with accepting myself as part of the disability community. And I hadn't unpacked that some of the ways I was being treated had to do with what I could and couldn't do and weren't just about my race. Mm. Um, Sometimes it's hard to separate out microaggressions for what what the cause is you're just like well I was never going to fit into these spaces anyway but I didn't realize that this is one of the reasons I didn't belong.
0: And I can imagine I you know as I've talked to other people that have experienced disability injustice and ableism that's something when you're talking about chronic pain that, that you're sorting through, like I, my, the, what I've heard is that even the medical community has a lot of doubt and, and has a lot of, whether it's misogyny, whether it's racism, whether it's steeped in ableism, but there's a lot going on there. And was that your experience as well? Oh my God. Yes.
2: Yes. I mean, just this year, the New York Times ran an article saying that doctors openly admit to not wanting to have or treat disabled people because it's an inconvenience, you know, in the middle uh, of a pandemic. And that was just one. They were so... COVID really took the mask off, no pun intended, of the way that we have really normalized eugenics in our country and in all of our day-to-day like systems and structures. Um, but actually, at the time in church, I grew up in a really faith healing community and I always thought that maybe I didn't believe hard enough or I wasn't good enough or God was going to talk to everyone else, but not to me because my pain just never went away. And other people believed enough and had miraculous healings that I just assumed that something was wrong with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious to ask you about a, a particular phenomenon that I have heard from, I have a partner who is uh, chronically ill and and disabled and and they have mentioned to me that through COVID and through the experience of, you know, kind of the world beginning to go like, oh, we can do these things remote. We can have more accessible options because we're forced to, uh, a frustration From them being like, what the fuck, like for years, I've been asking, can I get access to this or that because I had a need because of my disability? And now because, you know, Chad, who paid full price for tuition, can't, you know, go to class because of COVID, we're going to make allowances for him Mm -hmm. that were never made for me that were never made for the disabled community uh, and the chronic illness community, and and I guess it, the question here is like, do you feel like people sometimes don't understand the frustration from a marginalized community when there is a act of you know quote unquote goodwill that feels like oh you're only doing this because there's some other motivator and i i tend to see this where then they go like oh well we're trying so hard we're trying to make accommodations uh but it's like no not because you actually care about me or disabled people you're trying to do this because you're just trying to keep your business or your school or whatever afloat you're trying to cater to the the greatest amount of people and not actually caring about the person who needs these things.
2: Yes, and I think your interpretation is a really generous one. Um, I I think it applies, but I think it's generous. Um, I don't think it's ever been about access. We've always had these needs. They were never considered until profit was threatened. And now that there's a push, again, profit related to return to businesses in person because we can't let that commercial lease go to waste, uh, those areas of accessibility are being taken away again. Um, So we could always have them. They were always available, but they were never going to be available to disabled people. And I don't think the reason that they weren't available was because it wasn't possible. I mean, we certainly know that. And the people I'm seeing continuing to get accommodations now aren't disabled people. They're busy CEOs. They're fucking Chad or whoever it is. And I don't know how that's going to play out because one in four Americans is disabled, whether or not they identify that way, we're going to have a mass portion of the population disabled by COVID and long COVID. And there's been absolutely no preparation for that in the workplace or outside of the workplace for access, I think. You didn't ask me this, but I think the plan is a very slow genocide as we continue to normalize mass death, because we've decided and shown the general public who gets to live, who gets to be in these spaces. And when we say, oh, like masking is up to you, if you feel comfortable, well, you've now made sure that there are huge groups of the population that can't participate in any activities. It's not really you do you if that doesn't protect everyone.
0: Yeah. Um, and I, one thing like you've talked about having conversations with people about this and, you know, kind of exposing the ableism that's baked into this policy or that policy. And I'm curious both with this. And I think the other conversation that we're going to move into in a minute, you're, you're somebody that doesn't hold back that you say the thing. And, and I know for me, I do that to some degree but then when it comes to sometimes like one-on-one conversations that I know are going to be difficult and that I'm not sure how the person is going to respond if I'm going to feel seen or heard or valued in that moment. I I kind of have to sometimes I have to prepare for those moments in therapy, right? Mm-hmm. So I can know that like I'm going to say the thing that I need to say, but I may or may not have it received the way like, I can't, like, I can't have an expectation on how it's going to be received if I'm going to be able to walk to the other side of that conversation in he mm. like well and whole and not be kind of decimated for the day. And so I'm curious, mm-hmm. like how you navigate, okay, I, cause you advocate for marginally you know, disabled community for people of color. Like I, and so like when you do that, like how do you navigate that kind of, okay, I'm going to have this conversation and it's going to be tough. And, and it may not be received the way I need that reception or in a way that makes me feel valued or seen or heard.
2: That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I prepare in any particular way. I, like to tell people that I came out of the womb, like argumentative and ready to go. And so I've always been a really strong-willed person. I've never had a hard time saying the difficult thing. And I'm multiply marginalized in so many different ways that I just don't fit into most rooms in the first place. So discomfort is somewhat comfortable for me. Um, I did let go of the expectation of how anyone would react early on, because racism is just a thing, and I think I was six when 9-11 happened, and then we had the conversation of like, what kind of brown are you, and like all kinds of horrible things the kids say to you. Um, But in terms of ableism, I pick and choose my battles too. Um, If I've had the conversation with someone and they're going to continue to behave the way that they're going to behave... And they know exactly who I am and what my needs are and what my disabilities are and how much danger they put me in by not masking or not testing or any of the other things that they do. At some point, I'll just stop having the conversation because they know and I've been clear and they've shown me who they are. And if I have to continue to interact with them because for business reasons or let's say they're family and you can't, you know, step out of that. It just is what it is. And I try to be as clear as I can. It's been really painful though. I've lost a lot of friendships. um, And even in some of the ones that I maintain, I've lost a lot of respect for people. Yeah. I think it's robbed me of trust. Like aside from my husband, I don't think I will ever trust another human being the way that I did before COVID. Hmm. Cause like, what is safe? You know, people be like, I was so careful. I don't know how I got it. And I go on their Instagram and I'm like, here's you, maskless at a conference. Here's you at a huge party. Here's you at this thing, at that thing. Here's you with your grandma in the hospital with a surgical mask under your nose. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to say though, I don't blame people for a lot of their actions. And I don't think that anyone deserves what's going to happen to them. I think a lot of the blame is due to institutional failure and like the governmental need to put profit over people. And when people follow the CDC guidelines and they don't understand that the purpose, much like HR, is to protect profit in the institution, they're not being given good guidance. And the people who are most affected, who've lived with the consequences are disabled people and socially we've decided that those are not people. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Go ahead,
0: Megan. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, I was going to shift gears. So if you have something else before we shift gears, Cortland.
1: No, I don't, I, I, let's, yeah, go, go yeah,
2: for it. No, go I was going to say, um, I think the best way I can describe my entire relationship to church and disability is, and correct me if I'm getting the name wrong, that theology beers conference that was held this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Ooh, tell me more. Yeah, so they had this conference. It was all in person, no testing, no masks, huge group of people who I know have benefited from the work of black and brown women and disabled women especially, who built these incredible platforms on look how affirming and accepting and amazing I am. And for them to turn around and spit in the faces of people that they helped use to further their career was like peak representation of the church to me it's like the way that like white women will leave evangelical culture and rebrand but they haven't left any of the toxicity behind
1: yeah i i think that that is yeah go go for it megan it's a perfect segue into what we want to talk about
0: That's exactly like that. One of the interactions that we had on Twitter was talking about these like white women influencers, and you see a lot of them. And you use this term curated authenticity that I thought was so intriguing. And I would love for you to unpack that and just talk a little bit about like, what what that means to you and what you see in this kind of influencer culture, um, especially with this, you know, the you know, quote unquote, curated authenticity.
2: Okay, I might not articulate this exactly the way I want to but to me curated authenticity is performed vulnerability for a specific audience who you are using to make money. So for example, Jen Hollis is a great person to talk about this with. She builds this platform on being honest and open and vulnerable. And it's like a beautifully staged photo of somebody crying and the captions really, really long and it's stylized perfectly. And it's this like tragic story of like, look how messy I am, look how vulnerable I'm being, but in very curated language with plenty of filters and like, I feel so ugly, but it's like, well, you have lots of filler and Botox, and you may feel really ugly, but if we're going to be honest about appearance and insecurity, and you don't name the things that you've done to make yourself feel better, that's disingenuous, Um, and I also wonder how much of that is authentic. Is it vulnerable when you have commodified the most difficult, dark, Parts of your life for public consumption. Like, how can you really be authentic when every difficulty is content? And to continue talking about Jen Hollis, to react right. so. Dif- oh, yeah. Go ahead.
0: It's we were talking about Rachel Hollis, right? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yes, Rachel. We don't know Hollis. who Jen Hollis I just
1: went, is, but I, she's cool. I think, I think maybe, um, maybe Ra- not.
0: Rachel. Hollis. I think you're combining Jen a couple Hat-Maker. different platforms that we've talked about. Yes, I'm <laughs> so. thinking
2: of Jen Hatmaker too because of that, like, again, very curated family idea. And then if you make your life public consumption and you say I'm open and I'm honest and I'm vulnerable, and then it comes out that all of these other things were going on in your life, and no, you're not required to share them, but you get wildly defensive that people would accuse you of being disingenuous. I I don't know what they expect people to do. Like, You made your life content.
0: I think you really hit the, the crux of it right there in that, because I think that when we see it come out is when they get pushed back on a post Mm -hmm. on, on something. And so I know like for Jen Hatmaker, she had posted a picture of her kind of like, Cozying up to somebody on a plane and was kind of fetishizing their size and and also like they were asleep and they they did not have consent about that mm-hmm. and and so there was a lot of pushback and it, it felt like the reaction was more just like lol haha and then she just kind of took it down and disappeared and was like sorry I'm at a conference I'm not really and so I just think that like that's the thing and I think with Rachel Hollis we've seen the same thing like when she's gotten pushback for the way that she's talked about people of color and the way, you know, the way that she's talked about her wealth. And, and she just kind of says like, I'm not going to apologize. Like in, and, and her, the, the level of just kind of, it becomes, it turns into like, like narcissism. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't cultivate a parasocial relationship with people that you make money off of and then expect them to turn it off when they don't know the appropriate time to do that. And like in Jen Hatmaker's case, you don't get to build a public platform and make the jokes that you'd make with your friends, whether they're appropriate or not, and think that you're not going to be held accountable. There's a certain level of responsibility that comes with having a platform like that and what you do and don't share. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily right, or we could get into cancel culture, which I also don't think is real. It's just people not wanting to be held accountable for their actions or know how to move forward. but. Um, you you don't get to step out of that and you don't get to say like, I wasn't thinking about it because you made it your job to perform the lifestyle that you're going to perform.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would like to talk a little bit about cancel culture (laughs) Um, because I think that, that, you know, the way in which I have perceived people talk about it, the, conversation always involves or evolves around like the, the, the people doing the quote unquote canceling and not on the people incapable of actually walking through some form of public accountability. And I don't think that like the, the goal should be, Hey, we need to stop calling out problematic behavior I mm-hmm. do think that we should be like trying to figure out how people can actually walk out real accountability in, in public. Um, but I don't feel like that's ever the actual goal of people who cry, you know, anti cancel culture or stop canceling people or or whatever. Right. What are your yeah, thoughts on I that? I mean
2: Well, my thoughts on cancel culture and the way that people respond to it is that I think parts of it come from white supremacy, and I think parts of it come from a lack of imagination. So I sometimes will teach the 15 tenets of white supremacy, and one of those is right to comfort, and another is perfectionism. Um, And when we talk about those things, we talk about the right to comfort, I think people who don't want to be canceled stay in the right to comfort, which can quickly become the right to be free from criticism. And I also think Mm -hmm. we do not teach enough people, especially white people, what it means to have radical imagination or community justice. So to them, all they're seeing is, I have said and done the wrong thing and everyone hates me and the only way I know how to respond is to not respond, give a PR response or, you know, take some time and never acknowledge it. We don't teach people to do a good job of taking accountability, what the steps to an apology are, or what it looks like for the injured party or group to decide what justice looks like. Usually people stop listening at the moment that they're being criticized and they don't invite like the most harmed people in to say, what's a restorative justice practice here? What does healing look like to you? Um, there's so much onus on the hurt person to like forgive, so it doesn't eat you up inside. And I personally don't think that you need to do that either. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I,
1: I I think it I think it was it was and I'm forgetting his name. I he he has a, a campaign. I believe his name is Carlos, and I'm blanking on the last name. Like love your neighbor, and he has like. Oh, a I know who of, you're like, thinking of. I want to say Lima, but I don't know if that's correct. Um, I thought
2: it was a couple syllables.
1: Yeah, I, I believe it was him I heard on a podcast. I'm just trying to cite who I heard say this, um, and I'll try to identify it. I tried to look it up on my phone but I was getting way too distracted. Um, so I'll try to find it and put it in the show notes. But he was on a podcast, and he said something about pastors and wanting to perform humility without ever being humiliated or ever feeling humiliated and i thought that that hit me because i was like there was so much you know performative humility from pastors in my experience growing up but the minute there was actual humiliation then it was like oh this is there this is bad we shouldn't be doing this to this person this is mean this is cancel culture whatever it might be and i'm like but how does how are you actually humble without ever admitting you've done something humiliating. Mm
2: -hmm. I think too, we need to get past whatever it feeds in us to go after someone who's done something wrong, because it's so easy to see the wrong thing done. And it's so easy to say, you should have done this. You should have done that. And like, everyone's coming from a place of, well, I know better and I do better now. And there's no sympathy because of the disgust for your former self. (laughs) For anyone else who's in that place, because once you move past it, it's hard to imagine being close minded, being unaware, whatever those things are. Like we need to have grace for our past selves so that we can have grace for other people who are still on that journey of learning, assuming that they're willing to do so in good faith. Um,
0: well, and I think that's a piece of it, because I think people tend to get to this place where they feel like they've, quote unquote, arrived at whatever it is they're looking to arrive, like, oh, like in the world of harm reduction or the world of whatever, you know? And so they, you know, they might think, well, I'm at a place where I can't cause harm because I know about harm reduction. And so I think that's the part that's missing is that people don't realize that like we're all still in process and nobody has quote unquote arrived in, you know, never causing harm, never being able to hurt someone else, never being able to do something problematic. If, if, does that make sense?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite books from the year has been We Do This Till We Free Us. And the whole point is that you take the steps over and over again for the rest of your life because the journey for everyone to be free is going to be all of our lifetimes and then some. And if you're not comfortable, hmm, part of the like white supremacist culture is that need to have a resolution, that perfectionism, that everything has to be neat and tidy. And this black and white thinking There's no gray there. There's no comfort with the work could take my lifetime and then some, or like I might not see the seeds that I'm planting and whatever things I'm hoping to grow in, in my lifetime. I may never see them at all and being comfortable with that.
1: There's, there's a phenomenon that I, that I have seen. And I'm curious if you see it and, and what we should do about it or like how we should, talk about it or address it. And that is like using the good that is done by somebody to kind of excuse the bad. So sure, you know, Rachel oh, like Hollis, this is the
0: Matt Chandler vibe, right? Uh, like, yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: Matt, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's been used by evangelical pastors for sure. Like, look at all the people they've helped and, you know, yeah, there's harm, but look at all the pe- the good that they've done. But I think it also applies to the, you know, Jen Hatmakers and Rachel Hollises and, uh, you know, you know the Brene Brown's and the we we're just say all the names. Uh, who's got his gray? Brendan Marie Davies. Let's just like we'll just say all the mm-hmm. because I think that there's like hey this is what I'm doing. I'm helping all these women. I'm doing this. I'm helping free people. And like yes, I'm not doing all of this right maybe, but like you're taking all of this credit away from this good work that I'm doing Um, because you know we'll throw a guy in there, Shane Claiborne, right? Like he's (laughs) he's doing, he's doing this work for the poor people's campaign and he's, you know, doing these good things. Um, and therefore his failure to affirm the queer community and his failure to actually acknowledge, uh, several different marginalized communities is like, you're somehow hurting his good work. If you bring up the problematic stuff.
2: I think I would ask a series of questions to that first, which is, is it actually good work? Because if we're centering the most marginalized person all the time, the likelihood of that harm is significantly reduced. Um, And two, I think I would ask all of those people with those platforms, why does it have to be you? Maybe you were the stepping stone for people to continue on your journey, but if you've been told that you're harmful and you're not willing to change, why does it have to be you? like hand the reins off to someone who can do that better who's making those changes and stop insisting on the right to have your platform because you have it I just don't think all of these like pseudo-spiritual influencers need to have the platforms they have just because they're used to having them I think we outgrow them and I think society starts to outgrow them and I don't know that we need all of that um With people like Ravi Zacharias, and that's like a really polarizing example to use, but it's one that I hear most often. Well, he saved all these people and, you know, we can't take that away from him, even if he did harm all of those other people. I think that's a, the need to resolve that quickly is another one of those like black and white thinking, tenets of white supremacy. Maybe he did help people, but at what cost? I this is maybe an unpopular opinion, but I would much rather not have had him at all than to have that harm done. Because to me, it's not worth it. It might be for other people. And that's an unpopular opinion I have when it comes to things like separating the art from the artist. Like people will say, well, I love Woody Allen movies. And, you know, I just can't imagine like not watching, you know, fill in the blank, any of his films. And I would say, well, how many other like Voices was he screaming over how many other talented people are there out there that didn't get a platform that didn't get their art noticed or recognized because an old pedophilic white man was busy like tracing around hollywood
0: yeah and i think you're the first person that um made me aware of the problematic history behind the author of um the body keeps the score is oh, that yeah uh he is. i think it's a it's a that's another example of like, this work has been, you know, deified. And also the author was very problematic. If I, if if I'm not mistaken,
2: you're not mistaken. He was very problematic, but unfortunately the black woman whose work he based his book on was also an abusive mother. And so there's no really getting away from the harm done by kind of like anyone that we love, we're all going to fuck up, but sometimes those harms are too big to pass over. I think.
1: I just think that there's something I just heard you, Emily say something that I think doesn't get talked about enough. And that's like, there is other work, like there is other mm-hmm. people. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes we're having these conversations under the assumption that these individuals we're talking about hold the a monopoly somehow on this piece of work that they're doing. And, mm-hmm. and it's a, a lack of perspective that there is actually a lot more work being done outside of these people that maybe got to us or reached us in a certain way.
2: I a hundred percent agree. I think one, there's a lack of imagination. And two, there's a lack of, um, if you have a predominantly white audience, but the person that you're okay, let's take Brene Brown for example. If you have borrowed or you have learned heavily from black and brown women, but you have a primarily white audience, they're not gonna look for the people that you based your work on or that you learned from, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. I think some of people, some of the people with these platforms have a responsibility to talk about where their work began. And many of them don't take that opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I want to dive into that a little bit further because Cortland, you mentioned Brene Brown earlier, and that's something that we had all talked about. Like, hey, like let's unpack this a little bit because we've had other folks on the podcast just kind of say like, um, hey, let's not you know say that she's the end all be all when it comes to vulnerability and shame because there's so again so many other authors out there, and there are things that are a little bit problematic about her too. Um, <laughs> what are what are your thoughts on Brene?
2: My thoughts on Brene Brown and kind of the other women like her who have made a living about talking or talking about shame and vulnerability is that, like you said, they're not the first. I think many of them write the same book over and over in different words, and I think their audience needs to hear it over and over. Uh, in our friend group and social circle, I've called her kind of the Robin D'Angelo of post-faith spaces. Um mm much of the audience is white women. And like Robin D'Angelo, they join a book club. They learn that whether it's race or vulnerability, this is a concept they need to be introduced to and they stop there. They don't read other authors. They don't look into the origins of her work. They don't dive deeper. And often when these women are discovering their voice, which I want them to do, I want them to be brave. I want them to be vulnerable in discovering that they have a voice, they start screaming over other people. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that is a very ex-evangelical post-Christian tendency. Mm-hmm. As is like evident by the fact that we share a podcast genre with a lot of other people saying a lot of the same things. Mm-hmm. And I'll acknowledge that we are a part of the. I mean, we are a part of that. I don't know what you want call it. Phenomenon, community. Uh, I think there's a choice. There's like a crossroads that people come to. And I see them sometimes go one of two directions. Either, you know, saying, hey, this this is problematic. And I'm going to go over here. Or you know, I don't I don't acknowledge the problematic aspect of this and I'm going to just kind of like blindly continue to support or follow this person creator, influencer, community, whatever it might be. And then sometimes, I feel like that's how you get your more extreme uh, voices on the right, I guess is like you have, you know these people who are crying cancel culture and free speech absolutism and whatever because they didn't have what you're talking about which is the imagination to be able to mm-hmm. actually see I really like that word that you used and I think that there is a lot to it
2: Yes um I agree with you I also um in that vein I talk to my therapist a lot, both about shame and about cognitive dissonance, and I see this play out in all of these white spaces we've talked about. Deconstructive spaces, Brene Brown spaces, COVID spaces we do not teach people how to reckon with the harm they've caused and so they have to lean into it can't be that bad these people must be exaggerate the unwillingness to accept that they've done harm is so strong you have to lean into a completely different narrative and all of a sudden you end up in a place where you don't inhabit the same shared reality with anyone and because you're inhabiting this new reality with people who will tell you that you did nothing wrong and you were so brave for like speaking up, or you were so brave for saying the thing that people told you was harmful, you just keep getting patted on the back. And then you lean further and further into this cognitive dissonance that's needed to maintain your belief that you're not a villain. Instead of like, I can do harm, and I can move on. I can do harm, I can make amends, I can keep going. Like, Brene Brown talks plenty about shame, but sometimes we need shame too. I think racism is a good example of that because it used to be less socially acceptable to be a Nazi than it is now. And it wasn't, you know, public shaming has worked at times. I'm not saying that we need to bring it back, but I'm saying people need to learn to reckon with it in a healthier way instead of run screaming.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think to some degree it's, it's whiteness. I think people um, especially white people generally move in the world with the sense that they're going to be given the benefit of the doubt. And so when it comes to owning up to harm that they're, they're causing, um, they want to just say, Hey, can't you just kind of, and and it, it goes into the whole conversation about intent versus impact once mm-hmm. again, it's like, Hey, like, that's not what I meant. Can't we just kind of move through this and, and, you know, brush it aside And, and it's so interesting because, you know, earlier you said something about the PR statement that they might make. Mm -hmm. And I feel like almost always in those PR statements, they fail to even use the word sorry Mm -hmm. when it comes to, Hey, like this damage was done. And they're saying like, this was the situation. They don't really, you know, they give a vague description. They might say, um, you know, somebody was hurt or acknowledge that, but they, they really don't say that they're sorry. And it's just that like moment of like, what is it about that failure to be able to say, I'm so sorry and sit with that for, Mm -hmm. with, with that discomfort of, you know, I, I fucked up and I'm sorry about it.
2: But don't forget that they're going to perform, that they will be thoughtfully reflecting for a period of time on the actions they've taken that have caused harm. And then never actually name those actions, never make direct amends, never deal publicly with something that's happened. Yeah, Yeah. I think the apologies are just as curated.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, I think in, in so many of these cases, these are situations where there is there is a impact that was not considered when whatever work was being done and the choice tends to be either do the you know the PR statement and then just continue to like functionally ignore the consideration Mm -hmm. that you didn't consider ever anyway or to go to the other end of the extreme and you know, demonize the group that has, you know, come against you or canceled you or, you know, tried to, you know, destroy you or whatever it might be, um, which is how you end up getting these, you know, I think we talked a little bit with Ashley Thomas on the podcast, I think about Candace Owens, cause she had done Mm -hmm. a podcast with, uh, Janice Legata from God is not given about Candace Owens and the fact that she was writing feminist, you know, uh, relatively liberal essays in her early career and was, you know, relatively victimized during the whole Gamergate situation. And from that situation flipped to being like, basically kind of like violently positioned on the other side as a means to kind of self protect because she felt attacked. And so therefore she was like, here's an opportunity for me to vilify the people who have attacked me, um, in Mm -hmm. this way. Um, and I think you see that somewhat consistently Megan and I have talked about like, how do people go from being quote unquote progressive to being Jordan Peterson, you know, like, how does that happen?
2: Actually, um, a short, quick answer to that is take a good look at the KKK and their KKK to crunchy spirituality to alt-right pipeline, because that's been there since like the 30s and 40s. And you see it now on like Instagram and TikTok, people move into this, I don't believe in God anymore, but I'm in a pseudo-spiritual space. And then pseudo-spirituality to the alt-right pipeline still exists. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: That's wild to me. Like, I know that that is true. I have seen it, but it feels wild like that that is it doesn't that doesn't seem like a normal on ramp that like I would normally think is like how you get to being.
2: Oh, I see it all the time. And it's like also repackaged spirituality too. like prosperity is Prosperity culture is the same thing as manifesting. I mean, the idea that you're just going to welcome these things in, and you just need to think good thoughts and you just need to manifest the future that you want to have is kind of the same thing as prosperity vulture, prosperity culture, my goodness. And, um, that quickly turns into, I deserve the bad things. I can't consume news. I can't think critically. I can only think about positivity, which leads you into toxic positivity. And then you're like driving down the anti-vax snake oil off ramp.
0: Mm. You know, it's interesting. Like as we were having this conversation, I I was thinking about Josh Harris and how like of all the people that we've named, Josh Harris is somebody that as toxic as he was, came back, did something, tried to create a deconstruction course, got a ton of pushback and just pulled it and listened mm-hmm. and responded and said, Hey, this was super problematic. I'm sorry, I'm going to pull the course. And I like, of all the people that you would consider like doing the right thing, I, I mean, it, I think that his name has come up more than once as somebody who's like, actually, that's the thing that you do when you get the pushback mm-hmm. that the thing you're doing is problematic, right?
2: Absolutely. And I know people don't want to give him too much praise because it's just the natural right thing to do. They think we're still in a fragile space where we do need to publicly and openly commend that kind of behavior so that we can normalize it a little bit better.
1: Yeah. yeah. And for yeah. anyone
2: that's interested in the like KKK to alt-right pipeline, you can easily Google that. It's part of like the infiltration of Nazi propaganda into the United States in the 30s and 40s.
1: Yeah. I'm definitely going to do some Googling and, and because I, because I definitely saw it, like, if we go back to like talking about COVID, um, I was pretty active. Like my work um, that's not podcast related is heavily in the cannabis and psychedelic uh, Mm -hmm. industries. And I saw it. We have new loan
2: programs for that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I saw it a ton (laughs) in the cannabis and psychedelic space COVID denial, anti-vax, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of government conspiracy theory, a lot of COVID conspiracy theory. And I, like, I was like, how is this? It, it was bewildering to me because I was, I I expected, I guess, coming out of very sheltered evangelicalism, I expected for people who like, you know, are microdosing mushrooms to not be, you know, the same you know, propagating the same ideas that my like, you know, sober, you know, father who hasn't touched alcohol in his whole life. You'd think those would be different people, but so many of them seemed to be, kind of, the same people, especially I in mean, very wide spaces. That,
2: oh yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense if you come to an understanding that the fears are the same. There's still that fear of institutional corruption. It's coming from a mm-hmm. different place, but both of those people are afraid of institutions, they're afraid of like big pharma and what have you, and rightfully so. You have different groups of people who experience different consequences and different um, different aspects of institutional failure, but they're afraid of the same thing. And I mean, again, institutionally, we are not honest enough to make people trust anything. I'm not saying that anyone should be a COVID denier, but I can see how communities who were incredibly harmed by the opioid epidemic or were tested on or what have you have these deep fears and no one telling them that things are safe has been a person they can trust. Like, I don't love Dr. Fauci. He mishandled the entire HIV epidemic. He had an open letter. Much like he did during COVID from people who were dying, begging him to do something, begging him to acknowledge the reality of the situation, who were brushed under the rug. It's not right, but these are both groups of deeply fearful people.
0: I think it speaks to like this. I think the same could be said of, you know there's this camp that the the people who supported Trump and they were all Trump he could do no wrong and i feel like there's so many people now with Biden that are like we voted for him but we don't really like him it's and it's mm-hmm. it's like we're not in a cult we're allowed to not like the person that is doing you know is is in that position that yes we elected him but also there's things to criticize there too. And so I think that it is like, there's not going to be a person that we can just hold up and say like this person just does everything right. And every decision they make is just the right decision and they're not capable of harm. And I think that's kind of where all of this conversation is coming from.
2: Well, I mean, you're going to get me on to how I think that the right to complaining is like one of the most beautiful things that we are entitled to and the the fact that we're able to criticize openly and publicly now is something I don't take for granted and I'm seeing it start to go away and of course you're entitled to criticize your representatives you elected them yeah I I hate this cult of personality that we've moved into it's like influencer culture has in infiltrated politics oh on the note of conspiracy theories too I think the thing that's most difficult for evangelicals and non-evangelicals is that there's grains of truth in many of these conspiracies, like QAnon, for example. I don't obviously believe in QAnon, but people have genuine concerns about institutional corruption. And by failing to talk about institutional corruption, you have people like piecemealing things that they can find on the internet and building a conspiracy. And then you have like the alt-right using preemptive narrative inversion to make sure that any criticism of an institutional structure looks insane yeah but you know that's for my global corruption book club
1: <laughs> I think another an- another thing that I guess I would love to get your take on is 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 there is there i know we're coming toward the end of our time here, but like is there a way for people to not react in the way that I tend to see people react to criticism in a mm. way that, that is more constructive. I, I think of, for myself, like I have been publicly like challenged and called out by people like Camille Hernandez. Um, I don't know if you know Camille. Um, Alicia D. Crosby uh mm-hmm. Joe Lumen have all like publicly been like Cortland the fuck. Mm-hmm. You know, like like and and those are people who I continue to try to go like, hey, how can I learn? How can I figure out where I fucked up? Um because I want to learn, um, but not in a way that puts labor on those people or that, you know, objectifies those people for their labor, um, so so how how would you I guess like tell tell people or help people to figure out how to like respond or navigate in those situations.
2: Um, I think it's a multi-part answer. And I think you answered part of it in describing that situation. Those are all women that you trust and respect and value. And you have a community in your life of diverse individuals who are willing to call you out. So first, are you in relationship with people who are willing to do that? And if those are the people calling you to change and to action, then yeah, you do need to reflect and you do need to sit with that criticism. If it's like trolls or people you don't have an intimate relationship with, or it's not a large group of marginalized people all saying the same thing, then maybe you don't need to address it. But um, I think it's to work with yourself. You can do DBT, you can do whatever works for you to control that initial like reaction, that surge in your chest of, oh no, that like shame flare, because it isn't about you it's about an action that you've taken no one is saying you yourself are a bad person you're not your you're not the sum of all the actions you've taken and then like go turn off your phone and sit down and like take 72 hours to sit with the thought I see people so desperate to make the feeling of shame the feeling of wrongdoing go away that they skip doing the actual work they're so desperate to get the apology out, so they don't have to feel that bad feeling anymore. And I would say practice being uncomfortable before you do anything else. Practice, practice being uncomfortable. Practice sitting with that, because the better you can get at holding that, even if it feels terrible, the better you're going to be able to appropriately respond and address the harm you've done. Ice your vagus nerve while you're processing like that entire response, if shame flares up in your body. like understand where it shows up in your mind and your body so that you can do what you need to do. Like go take a walk, whatever it is, have someone that you really, really trust that you can bounce that off of and say, Hey, I was told that I did harm in this way. Mm -hmm. I need 30 uninterrupted minutes of your time to kind of better understand what I did. Um, And if the person who called you to harm is able to help you, you could say, Hey, I am not asking for your labor but to make sure that I'm taking the right step, do you have like one source you could point me in the direction of so that I can learn or, you know, just, just start Googling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge is to not center ourselves. I think that's like the biggest thing that I know I have a tendency to do. And I see people do where they are like, Oh, this is all about me now. Which is yep. not helpful.
2: The, no, the other inconvenient advice that I find works really, really well is like stop your day and go take a shower. Like it interrupts your brain. It gives you time alone, uninterrupted to think about it. It's soothing. It's calming for your body and your stress response. Like if I have a work disaster, if someone tells, I will stop what I'm doing and I will go take a shower. You need the like mental reset <laughs> to think about what happened without the like flare of panic. Yeah. yeah. That's
0: so good. Um, well, wow. This has been a really great conversation and I know our listeners are going to benefit so much from everything that you had to say. So thank, thank you, you so much for coming on.
2: Yeah, thank um, you we, for having me.
0: yeah, for sure. We always wrap by having you plug, like, where can people find you? Where can people interact with you and see kind of other thoughts that you're sharing?
2: I'm not really on anything. I'm on Twitter at E of all things. So if I have math lovers out there, you'll appreciate the pun. And that's kind of the only place to find me.
1: Awesome. 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 Are you a math nerd?
2: A little bit.
1: Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I, I'm i all about math. One of my partners is, is also a math, like has her master's in
2: We have a big book of like millennium problems on our coffee table, things like that, like higher level mathematics. Yes. Basic algebra. No, I'll really struggle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm all about the high, the high level. It's like talk to me about math. That's basically flirting for me. I'm into it. Mm -hmm. It's super cool.
2: Absolutely. So
1: awesome. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Definitely encourage people to follow you on Twitter. And I just am really grateful for your time and you sharing your voice with us. It's, it means a lot to, to me. And I know it does to Megan as well.
2: Thank you both so much. This was lovely.
0: Awesome. All right. Whew, that was such a good conversation.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful. Uh, and hopefully other folks will connect uh, with Emily and, and, and share this episode and, you know, uh, hopefully it's impactful for people. Uh, I don't have much that we need to wrap up with, uh, other than our normal wrap up. Are there things to make people aware of, uh, current things going on that you want to shout out?
0: Well, I just, I did want to, have like a, I have a little bit of reflection on this episode. Is that, can I share? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Because I yeah. think
0: that talking with Emily about a little bit about disability justice, and then kind of having seen some takes on Twitter, it's making me rethink my approach to masking. Cause I think that, um, I have walked around and moved around in the world with a fair amount of privilege when it comes to being able to go to a play or being able to fly. And, and a lot of those spaces don't require masking. And, realizing the importance of maybe not, um, just kind of going by what the venue says or what the ticket says, um, or what, you know, what, what's quote unquote being required and taking that extra level of care to think about people with disabilities, people with chronic illnesses, people with, um, that are immunocompromised and like just the inability to go out in public if everybody just kind of throws off the masks and says, whew, I'm free, you know, and just how much privilege there is in that. And so I think I've really d- done, been doing a lot of reflecting on that since, since we had this interview and this conversation too.
1: Yeah. 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 I think that, that, that I still have a ton of work to do um, when it comes to being more conscientious, conscientious, more aware of people's experience. Um, and I think that there is a burden on all of us to find and engage in conversations with people, um, who are going to make us feel uncomfortable, which I don't think is something that is human nature to do. Um, it's, I think it's oftentimes in our nature and the way we work is to, you know, try to find people who are going to make us feel better about ourselves, good about ourselves, more comfortable. Um, and especially, I think, again, those of us who feel like we're on the right side of so many things, uh, it's not always, you know, the first thing we think of to like, okay, let's find somebody who, you know, maybe has a perspective that is in opposition to what we're hearing, maybe, on a more regular everyday basis um, yeah. and then really listening, so.
0: Yeah, that listening part is key.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah, so I think that's that will wrap it. Um, where can people find you, Cortland, on the socials?
1: Yeah, Cortland Coffee all over Twitter primarily, Instagram some, TikTok more and more every day. Uh, and quick plug for the Discord. It's uh, oh, it's we, so much you know, fun. Megan started this Discord that we've got for thereafter, and it's been a blast. And I want to get more people in there and hang out. I want to spend more time in there. So if you want to get involved in that, please DM Megan or I, and we can get you an invite to the Discord. Um, but yeah, Cortland Coffee all over the other socials.
0: Yeah, and you can check out the podcast thereafter podcast on Instagram, thereafter pod on Twitter, and I'm the pursuing life on all the socials and um yeah come come hang out with us in discord because it's a ton of fun
1: yeah yeah absolutely all right well until next time uh we will see you uh around the web
0: all right until next time